Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar, and co-host, Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, all. It's Bob Chevier here, your host of Outside the Lines, and I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. And Hi, we're everyone. Ab- Hi, Scott. And we're hey, about Bob. halfway through uh, the French Open, so we're going to do a short recap and some of the things that we think we find very interesting about the matches that either have been played or are coming up. And, of course, anytime you're on playing on the red clay, one thing you're looking at is the playing conditions. So I went ahead on my weather app, which I must say isn't too good around here in Katona, but hopefully it does a better job of telling me what's going to happen in Paris. And the forecast for the next week is basically a high of around 74 degrees each day, partly cloudy. So In other words, Rafael Nadal, who loves those extra hot bake the clay days where the topspin is going to be really jumping off the court, it's not really going to be happening for him the same way as when he's been successful in some of the French Opens in the past. He's going to have to work a little bit harder, I think. And of course, if they each win, Nadal is going up um, against... Felix Auger Aliassim next, and Djokovic um, also has a pretty tough matchup. Oh, Diego Schwartzman in his next match. If they should both win, they would meet in the quarterfinals. Um, are you looking forward to that matchup, or do you, do you think they're both going to get through, Scott, or what are you feeling? I, I think you have to say that they're going to get through, but I think that we're certainly going to see challenges there in the matches. Schwartzman, he just never goes away. And this is a real good surface for him in terms of his style of play. He is small, but he is fast and covers everything, doesn't make a lot of errors, and can certainly go on the attack off the ground uh, at times to uh, finish off points. So I think you have to play a very, very good match on clay to beat him. And in the other matchup, I think that Nadal is just too much for a team. I think he's going to give him a good fight. I just don't think there's uh, any getting past him uh, at this point. Nadal looks like he's playing well. I agree with you, Bob, these conditions uh, are not ideal for him, but still uh, he looks uh, completely motivated and very hard to bet against him, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. But there is uh, one interesting side story, and that's that um, 
Nadal's uncle, Tony, who taught him all his tennis for up until maybe the last two years. Um, he is now working with Felix Auger Aliassime. So it becomes a little tricky there for Uncle Tony. I mean, I wouldn't want to be him right now. Um, maybe potentially being asked, how do you beat your nephew uh, in this upcoming <laughs> match? I think that's a tough place to, uh, to be in. Um, Djokovic went through something similar because in his second round match, his former coach, Marian Vida, who was instrumental in bringing him through much of his success, was the coach of his second round uh, opponent, Malkan. And so, again, I'm not sure uh, I would have wanted to be in Vida's spot coaching against my former student, Novak Djokovic. Uh, but one other thing that I think is worth mentioning about Diego Schwartzman, as I was looking at his scores in this match, he struggled first in five sets in the opening round, then I think a tough four-setter, and then he played Dimitrov, who was playing extremely well, and he beat him like three, one, and two. Yeah, so, right, right through him. Yeah, so Schwartzman, I mean, I recall, I don't remember exactly what event, it could have been the French a year or two ago, and he played impeccably one day. And I thought, oh my gosh, whoever has to play him, he's building what people call momentum through the tournament and playing better and better. Well, the next match I saw him play, he could hardly hit the ball. <laughs> so <laughs> he he's a real sort of uh, confusing character to me because he definitely, it, what he does one day doesn't tell you too much about where he's going to be at the the match to follow where i think how about when you were playing scott weren't you able to let's say build on matches and play your way let's say into a tournament and round by round sort of get to really know what you could count on out there yeah, I think most of the time uh, there were tournaments where, you know, it just wouldn't uh, happen on a given day, even after playing a couple of rounds uh, at a solid and high level. But the sustainability is something that you have to work on as a player. For so, so for all of those listeners who are competitive, like club players, and then venture into tournaments uh, at times, one of the things that you have to really pay attention to is how to bring your best game uh, consistently day after day. When Bob, when you and I would play uh, these tournaments uh, going back, we would play usually, you know, one singles and sometimes another a doubles in the same day, but you'd play a match and then you go home, you come back the next day, play a match. Sometimes a weekend tournament, you'd play two singles matches in a day, but the whole idea of uh, maintaining uh, your level from match to match and not having these dips is, uh, is a very important mental and physical thing uh, and should be uh, thought about by uh, competitive players. I'm not really sure either what the problem with Schwartzman is uh, in that possibly I thought with Dimitrov, Dimitrov was that um, 
you know, the matchup was good for him on clay. I'm not sure I see that same result happening at the U.S. Open on the hard court. You, mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying, right? Yes, so I mean, yes. that, that kind of lend itself to that. But I, uh, I, but I do appreciate your observation about how his his game can dip uh, in kind of inexplicably, inexplicably. Um, so we'll have to uh, put that on the back burner as a something to watch, Bob, and see if we can, you know, get some insight into that uh, as we uh, watch him. How how old is he now? Is he um, in his early 30s? Diego? Schwartzman. Yeah. How old yeah. is he now? No, I think he's still in his late 20s. Late 20s. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's still got, uh, you know, plenty to show us. So we'll have to keep an eye on, on him. So uh, I know another player that you watch some of his match and everyone's keeping their eye on him is Carlos Alcaraz. He saved a match point in that second round match against Ramos Vignolas, a match in which he won only eight out of 31 breakpoint opportunities. Right. And one of the reasons that match was so close is Ramos Vignolas only had seven breakpoint opportunities himself, but he won six of them. So the ability to play the big points uh, really kept that one close. I got to I got to tell you something Bob I don't, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt your train of thought but what impressed me about Vinilos in that in that match was he had no second thoughts about playing aggressively at the most important times he did not let Alcaraz get over him in terms of what was going on in the point and I was very impressed with the fact that it was an obvious decision and he executed beautifully. But this is what I think brings that stat right to the forefront uh, in that he really stood up at those very pivotal moments and, and kept himself in the match. And I think he realized from the get-go that if he didn't do that kind of thing, it wasn't going to happen. Absolutely. You when you go in and you're playing one of the best, someone a little better than you, you have to decide I'm taking a few more chances today to give myself a chance to win. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. But I did see Alcaraz play his next round against Sebastian Corda, who I think is also a big time up and comer who hasn't quite had the same success as Alcaraz. He did beat him. about a month ago in Monte Carlo, Corda beat Alcaraz. But that match, of course, as the commentators were quick to mention, was played in 30 mile an hour wins. And it's not quite the same game of tennis as when you have decent conditions to play the match. And this match between Alcaraz and Corda was really, really one-sided. I mean, the, the total points won were 98 to 79 in favor of Alcaraz, three straight sets, four, four, and two. But what's also buried in the statistics is that Corda served nine aces. And anecdotally, many of them were on break point. So take away his nine aces and just say the ball is in play and who's winning what share of points. He really got hammered, which is a great sign for Alcaraz that Whatever was 
off a little bit against Ramos Vignolas, he's right back there playing that same high level of tennis that he came into the tournament with. So, right. and I, yes, please. I have two, I have two questions for you about Alcaraz. Okay. First of all, do you think that, and I don't know exactly the relationship between Alcaraz and uh, Ramos, but here you have a senior Spaniard who is like 34 years old and, and, and a 19 year old up and coming sensation. And I don't know what the relationship between them is. I mean, I know the Spaniards are very close as a group and they support each other and they, they've developed each other's games and, you know, Moya and, and Ferrero and all these other guys. I mean, it's an incredible organization and uh, federation they have there. I mean, I think second to none mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. But um, you think that maybe that had something to do with uh, with some of the nerves that I saw Alcaraz. He had he lost his feel for the drop shots, and he missed some shots that you just couldn't you know believe that he would miss. Um, you know, so that, that kind of got into my head, uh, a little bit about like what was really going on for him, because there was cer certainly something off, as you say. Um, but you know, he, he helped to keep, uh, Vinolas in that game, in that match. There, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I, I was thinking about why he didn't play the same level as against Nadal and Djokovic in the previous tournament, I think it was in Rome where he beat them both yeah, back to uh, back. And I think it's the role of changing expectations. He went into both of those matches as well as he'd been playing as the underdog. And he was able to take both of them. Now, of course, playing the veteran Spaniard, he was the clear favorite. And like you said, there is a closeness. So it's almost like you're playing your uncle or something like that when you're going out there on the court with these guys that hang out together. So I think adding all that up, it was a tough one for him to get through. Then yeah. once he saw an American on the other side of the net, he was like, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so so what do you um, what do you do if you're in Uncle Tony's uh, spot? How do you how do you navigate, uh, you know, that whole, uh, you know, dynamic of uh, coaching your nephew to, uh, you know, being like, you know, certainly one of the greatest of all time. And now you have you're coaching someone and playing against him in a big tournament. Yeah, I'm I'm going to. Um take a pass on becoming uncle Tony there. I just think that's really too tough a situation to be in. Uh, I, I know I personally would probably have a hard time giving the same type of advice that I would against anyone else. If I were coaching Auger Ali Asim, it, it, it would just be really a tough um, bridge to cross. I mean, typically, I don't know that my lessons really know, but I have an informal policy myself that if you're taking lessons with me, uh, then you join a team out of another club and you come to play against my team, I don't give my players any advice on how to beat you. 
It's up to them. They've been taught, hopefully, how to figure someone out. And they've got to use that skill. On the other hand, if I know a player's game and they don't study with me, uh, I'm all too glad to give a couple of concrete pointers to my players so that they go in better prepared for a match. So you know what some people would say with that? What's that? <laughs> Is it the student that's taking those lessons with you privately and or whatever, you know, they're investing, uh, you know, more time, energy and money with you than somebody being on a team who's not really deciding to have you as their coach. They're just deciding to be on the team that you happen to coach. Right. So you're, you know, you're deferring to the, to the, to the more, um, uh, let's say, uh, serious, uh, you know, player who has chosen you to take lessons with and to, and to invest in, uh, and you're giving them commensurate, uh, you know, consideration. Oh, I hope so, because I think that in a match that is sometimes decided by two or three points, the input of a coach can be the thing that makes the difference. Now, that being said, about two to three months ago, Simona Halep started working with Patrick Moratoglu over there in France. And as soon as she won a couple of matches, he was all over Twitter saying, look at me, look at me, what a great coach I am. <laughs> now, of course, she just lost to a 19-year-old Chinese girl, Zheng, Zheng. Zheng um, 6-2-6-1 after Halep won the first set rather convincingly. And what's he, he going to say? What's he going to say now? I, I didn't see anything about him posting, taking all sorts of credit. So uh, my way of uh, the reason I bring that up is because I think a coach can have that little bit of difference in a match, but it's really not the coach that's doing it. The coach has some input, but it's all about helping your player be able to show what they've got. And it's the player that's doing virtually everything. Right. So, And I'm disappointed in him, uh, Bob, because he coached Serena Williams. Yes. And, right. And, uh, you know, and then they had an amicable, uh, you know, when he wanted to coach uh, Halep, he made sure it was okay with Serena and he made sure that everything was uh, understood and there was good feelings and whatever. And then he went on to do that. So why does a guy like that have to blow his horn so loud when Halep, you know, does so well after he starts coaching her and, and, and whatever, setting him up, setting himself up for possibly what exactly happened because you know, as you said, you are not the main factor in terms of what's going on with those results. But he really, really wanted to take credit for those wins, you know, after he got on board. And now he's got a scramble and who knows, he may not even say anything about, uh, you know, what happened. But let's just hope she doesn't, uh, you know, just jump, jump ship and, you uh, and fire him or whatever, because that would be inappropriate also. Um, but, you know, we'll see, we'll see what, what goes on. 
Well, this young woman, uh, Quinn Wen Zhang from China, she's 19, that beat Halep and mentioning uh, the Spanish Armada is what it used to be called, but the closeness of the Spanish players and their system over there, she's actually living and training in Barcelona right now. So she's, uh, I guess, a Chinese product to some degree, but she's at one of those academies. And uh, obviously, they're doing a great job with her. Now, one thing I did notice as sort of a preview of her match with Swatek, she does hit higher over the net than many of the modern players, which pretty much play on clay as if it's a hard court. They hit these hard, low bullets a lot of the time, and especially the on the women's tour, but not her. She's using a nice mix of a heavy topspin arcing ball. And then if it should come back short, then she flattens it out. Now, you you were more of like the hard court type player. And when you would go to clay, would, would you change up your height over the net a little bit on your ground strokes or just say, this is my game and I'm just going with it? I think I was kind of clueless when it came to uh, making the adjustments going to clay. Uh, it's amazing that I had some of the good results that I did, um, considering that I really uh, did not uh, get myself to to change change things up a little bit um, and or more than I did. I mean, obviously, I wasn't serving and volleying quite as much if on the red clay or on the hard true uh, players were going to return that serve so much better. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I could certainly have done uh, more of that so that I could keep myself in the rallies longer and wait for the better ball to come in on uh, so that I could then take advantage of, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, my expertise at the net, you know, my good, I had good volleys and if, you know, mm -hmm. if I got to where the where the lob was, I could put the overhead away, which brings up something also, Bob, when this in this French Open, I've been noticing these players do not put the overhead away. Mm. And not just men or women. I mean, not that just not just the women. I'm not saying this for for a gender thing. I see that there's two or three balls coming back as a lob because the overhead is being hit short. It's not mm. even that it's not being hit to a target. It's hitting the service line. And that's getting the other player who's backing up, uh, giving them time to get over there and throw the thing up there again. And uh, there was one point, I think, with Alcaraz uh, in his match where he threw up he threw up a, a couple of amazing gets and threw up the lobs and he ends up he ends up winning the winning the point. Do you remember uh, seeing a point like that? But he, he had three chances to get to an overhead. And uh, it was really astounding. Yeah, that was the uh, Ramos Vignolas match. And right. he made a couple of gets at key moments on break points in that match. Right. Uh, that were just, I mean, I had never seen anyone cover yeah. the court like he covered the court. I've seen fast the, players, but this was this was another level. Right. And he hit those, hit those two. I hit like two backhands. I think that he, that Vinolas thought the point was over, like for for an hour, and he hit them up, hit them up the line uh, for winners. Yes. And it was just like you know incredible. So, 
So then we have Iga Swatek, the number one seed, and she's on this amazing 28 match, I think, or more winning streak right now, five right. straight tournaments and a right. couple of rounds here. So when you were playing and you were in the middle of your 28 match winning streak, how, how were you, <laughs> how were you thinking out there? <laughs> I was thinking I couldn't lose. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, you have to, uh, you have to pay attention to just keeping the discipline and doing the work and not letting your ego get uh, affected by the fact that you're getting such good results. Um, and, you know, I think it's hard to, uh, to stay up there. I think it takes a special uh, effort to do it. And I mean, I remember, you know, uh, falling down in that regard uh, a few times after having, you know, won like the Eastern Indoors uh, and beating, uh, you know, so many, you know, top five players uh, in the last like three or four rounds of that tournament. Um, you know, you, you kind of come crashing down in the in the weeks after that, uh, you know, if you're not careful. So mm -hmm. I think that's a huge challenge is to, uh, you know, keep yourself plugging away and uh, not letting, you know, let the past enjoy it and then let the past be the past. You know, she had, uh, this is Swatek did have a little hiccup today. She was up a set and four, one double break, and then proceeded to lose 16 of the next 20 points. Most of which were, unforced errors so she came way off but managed to get it together and pull out the second set seven five yeah she she is playing remarkably well and i must say the thing that impresses me her shot making is good but her court coverage is also like alcaraz she is getting to every single ball out there and giving herself a chance to make a play what a difference when you can cover the court like that. It's, it's, um, it's really yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, do you have, um, do you have another, uh, area you want to get into uh, before I just wanted to make a couple of comments about, um, I was really astounded to see two of the men's players, uh, Zan Schultz, Van de Zanschlup, yes. Van de Zanschlup, uh, and how bad his mechanics are on his serve. Mm. You know, and um, I mean, doesn't serve that badly in terms of you know he can hit the ball, he can he can get something out of it a lot of the time, but uh, that that opening the face of his racket and keeping his elbow so low, um, I mean, that just like like makes me feel uncomfortable when I watch him serve with that. Uh, <laughs> I've just noticed how well, I mean, he's been, he came out of nowhere, uh, maybe about nine months ago, a year ago, and he's consistently been doing a little better all the time. And of course, he had to play Rafa in his last match. And I, I thought it was going to be close because of his continual improvement. But Rafa showed that he's really, really on his game. He dusted him off in three pretty comfortable right. sets. Yeah, and and he never showed any passion. Did you notice that in his matches? I mean, or in that match, he was like he never. There was no, there was no. I mean, I won't say that he, um, you know, 
had to be angry or you know had to have a, all this uh, demonstrative behavior, but it looked like he didn't care. I mean, it was amazing how uh, you know like poker faced he was, which yes. a lot of people would say that's great, but I never saw him like show me that there was some kind of passion going on uh, underneath uh, you know all of that. So. You know, I, I thought that that was remarkable. Yeah, well, I also, I mean, that's, this goes back to our last podcast on intangibles, because you, you need to be able to channel your emotional energy into the way you play. And it really struck me watching Alcaraz and Corda play each other. Corda is definitely the calmer of the two. And I feel like I feel like maybe he needs to get a little more fire in there because he also reacts very similar to Auger Aliassime, who's also very calm and not demonstrative on the right. court. I feel, uh, you know, my whole system is you do keep the poker face, but I think channeling some of this emotional energy out into the game would definitely help both both of those players. And, and don't you think you can get the uh, crowd into it just like Alcaraz does? I mean, he he brings a crowd into it and gets them behind him. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Did it, does a great job with that. So one guy I would go back to want to talk about a little bit because people are ignoring him um, is Sitsipas. And I don't feel like I feel like he's hit like a wall in terms of the growth and development of his tennis game. Now, he was also with Patrick Moritoglu for a while. He's back with his father as his coach, <laughs> which is like, oh, my gosh. Right. Um, and I think he was the one who brought in Tomas Enqvist as another factor in his coaching. But I haven't seen anything that's going to get him over the hump to win a Grand Slam, which I think always comes down to being able to be more aggressive at the big moments. His backhand just can't do damage but, at all. And the and, top and guys Bob, are not bothered. And Bob, you're right. And do you see how they're doing this whole thing about showing like how far behind the baseline he's playing? Yes. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, they were saying uh, that, you know, they, that the results were, um, you know, were, were better, uh, you know, as he was, or he was getting better at being able to play from further back. I think that it's just so counterintuitive that you need to, be able to moderate like how far you're playing from behind the baseline to handle different situations and be able to move up uh, more and attack. I mean, Alcaraz does that like, like nobody's business. If you don't hit that ball well enough, he is just up on that ball and punishing you. Um, and and, and uh, this player, Emir from Sweden, Yes, uh, who's 23 years old? Uh, he was thrown in the drop shot because Sissy Pass was was so far behind the baseline, and Sissy Pass wasn't even getting up there to get the racket on it so, some of the time. Yes, 
Yeah. So, um, so I think that I don't know what's going on. I think he's got to like rethink this thing with his father. You know, let him call his father from uh, the bathroom and get a couple of things there. You know, but I don't think this full time coaching position is going to, uh, you know, do do much for him. Uh, so I think that that has to be looked at. Well, again, it's 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 only eyeball test, anecdotal evidence. But to me, Sitsipas' number one failing point or that's holding him back is his return of serve. Virtually every return that he hits back lands right at the tee. Now, you're playing with people who, when they can step in on a ball like that, at the level of tennis this is, getting that ball just back Maybe once in a while, that's all you can do. But generally, he's having a look at the ball and it's coming to the service line. That's not going to work at this level of tennis. And if you have a little more faith in your own serve and you're attacking forehand that you're not going to get broken, you have to start taking more risk on the returning end of the game to give yourself a chance to win a couple of quick points. You might miss a couple, sure, that's okay, but you only need, hopefully, that one break, and then you've got yourself a set. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm just, he's hes getting through the rounds, and maybe his goal is his father saying, look, just win another couple matches. I don't really care about the whole tournament because with a couple more matches, I can buy that new Porsche that you promised me. <laughs> um what's your, what's your thought what's your thought bob about um when um you know i saw it in the alcaraz match versus uh, ramos vinilas um i didn't i wasn't impressed with the uh position that that uh, alcaraz was using to return that lefty slice that was going out wide Mm -hmm. And he wasn't like he wasn't moving up on the ball a little on a diagonal and taking it earlier before it got out so wide. And uh, this should be something that's fairly fundamental that coaches would go over with their players and work with. First of all, step out there and be in the doubles alley a little bit more, even on the red clay and make the guy hit an ace up the up the middle. Mm -hmm. I don't think I saw. Ramos hit uh, any aces or, you know, get that many points by serving to the tee. Uh, so go out there and take away that slice. Uh, and, you know, I, I, that was just like incredible. When I was playing, I, I used to, um, you know, just take, you know, look, when I played Peter Bromley, that great lefty slice out there, mm -hmm. I would have one foot in the middle of the doubles alley so that he couldn't pull me you know, wide on my backhand. Right. So um, I'm seeing some, uh, you know, some some gaps in the coaching here and there on some men, fundamental things that you and I kind of have as bread and butter in our teaching routines. Mm -hmm. No, making those little adjustments on where you stand to return serve can be really big. I mean, I, I played a guy who uh, I was already up in Westchester coaching but he was a member of the team at harvard and he had a big kick serve and in the ad side he kept making me stretch and i was sort of floating the return back and he'd come in and make a volley and point was over i moved over one step 
and I won six love the second set. I mean, it's like, duh, what took me so long? Yeah. Yeah. But those little things, I think the listeners have to uh, pay attention to the fact that some of these little things, not only do they add up, but they can also have a very uh, definite uh, impression upon the opponent, just like this guy did not like you getting over there and in position for that kick serve that he was being so successful with uh, in, in the previous part of the match. And those kinds of things can uh, create like an incredible difference um, just in the psychology um, of, of the match. So, you know, as, as we say, you know, sometimes you have to think and sometimes you actually have to stand outside the lines. Mm -hmm. So just one other quick match I wanted to bring in before we sign off. That was a really great women's match between Belinda Bencic, who's perennially one of the top players. And she played Layla Fernandez, who was the finalist at the Open in 2020, where Raducanu beat her in the final. And this match went down to the wire. And I wish I had seen that. Bencic, Fernandez was serving at 5-4 in the third, got broken. And Bencic got broken back then. So Layla was now serving. At 6-5. Yeah. And Bencic took every return and hit it as hard as she could and went for a winner, got none of them in play, and the match was over. Would, would you ever be playing a match that you would put that much into and responded in that fashion? It was, was, it was pure, I mean, emotional waste it was so bad because it was anyone's match still right no um she, that was a that was an act of desperation yeah so we we have to sign off here scott okay um, bob thank you again and we'll be back at the conclusion of the french open with our thoughts on what happened out there great seeing you scott thanks bob take care <laughs>